This podcast is brought to you by ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Don't miss their annual conference coming to Dallas September 30th through October 2nd, the largest rehabilitation research event in the world, and it's interdisciplinary. Visit acrm.org. Welcome to the February 2018 episode of RehabCast. This is the podcast brought to you by the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. I'm your host, Dr. Ford Vox. Now, in our featured interview, we're going to be talking with Dr. Felicia Skelton about her work on a persistent challenge in spinal cord injury medicine, where management of urinary tract infections are a crucial topic. But are some of our clinical habits intended to head them off, actually causing harm. We'll be talking about that a little later in the episode. First, a few rehab-ready news briefs. First up, it's time for falling class. So there's a great new trend in the Netherlands that the rest of us might want to adopt, falling courses for the elderly. Now, we should recognize the fact that falling becomes increasingly inevitable as we age, and we are best trained for it, whether to prevent it, or at least fall as well as possible when it happens. The New York Times profiled a Dutch physiotherapy clinic, which, like hundreds of others across that country in the past 10 years, have started offering these courses several times a year. The course in Luzden happens twice a week for several weeks and involves obstacle courses and then practicing actual falls. According to the Times, the courses have become so popular in recent years that the government actually rates them. Now, in fairness, plenty of folks in other countries, including right here in the United States, are offering this type of therapy as well, but I think we're far less elaborate than what the Dutch have worked out. And we certainly don't have insurance schemes covering it, unless an accident has already occurred. The Times article is headlined, Afraid of Falling? For older adults, the Dutch have a cure. Check it out. Our next news item is Mocha's new fame. Now it's rare that a neurocognitive assessment tool makes its way into the international news headlines. And that Montreal cognitive test the president took was developed 20 years ago by a renowned Canadian neurologist. And if you scroll down to the bottom of the test, that's his name on the copyright right there, Dr. Ziad Nasreddin. And Dr. Nasreddin joins me now from his clinic in Montreal. Uh, doctor, thanks for joining us tonight. The president passed your test. He aced it, 30 out of 30. So after so many questions regarding his mental health, in your opinion, is it now case closed? I think the mental, uh, the cognitive test did show that he had a perfect score, which is reassuring in terms of his memory. But this test does not assess actually the personality or if there's any mental uh, illness or a psychiatric illness uh, or judgment problems. It's a cognitive test, meaning that it assesses memory, executive functions, uh, visuospatial skills, uh, calculation. So it's mostly a cognition that is assessed and not the rest of the mental uh, abilities. As you heard, that was Dr. Ziad Nasruddin there. He was speaking to Canada's CTV. Donald Trump now has the distinction of being the first American president to undergo any sort of formal cognitive testing, even if that test only took about 10 minutes. 
Now, he's already touted his Montreal Cognitive Assessment score in a Reuters interview, and this is definitely another first for anyone else in world history. Referring to the immediate prior three presidents and speaking about the North Korea problem, Trump said, quote, I guess they all realize they're going to have to leave it to a president that scored the highest on tests. Meanwhile, Donald Trump Jr. described scoring 30 out of 30 on the MOCA with a winning hashtag on Twitter. Now, the MOCA is only supposed to take about 10 minutes, but you might have some questions about what happened in the world's most famous administration of the MOCA, given how Navy Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson described the test in his White House press briefing. Many of you may have picked up on the fact that we did do a cognitive assessment as part of the exam. And initially, uh, you know, I had no intention of including a cognitive assessment in this exam because, to be honest with you, uh, per all the guidelines that are out there, uh, it's just it's not indicated at this time. A lot of the guidelines uh, would suggest that you do uh, that you do cognitive screening questions, and that if you have a positive or concerning answer in the screening questions, that then you engage with a cognitive screening tool. So I had no intentions whatsoever doing that, like I said, because I didn't feel it was clinically indicated. And part of the reason I didn't think it was clinically indicated is because uh, I've spent almost every day in the, pre in the president's presence since January 20, 2000, or you know, last year uh, when, he, when he got into office. And I've seen him every day. I see him uh, one, two, uh, sometimes three times a day because of the location of my office. We have conversations about many things. Most, of not, uh, most don't re uh, revolve around medical issues at all, but I've got to know him pretty well. And I had absolutely no concerns about his cognitive ability or his, uh, uh, you know, his, his uh, neurological function. So I was not going to do a cognitive exam. I had no intention of doing one. The, the, the reason that we did the cognitive assessment is plain and simple because the president asked me to do it. He came to me and he said, is there something we can do, a test or some type of screen that we can do uh, to assess my, uh, you know, my cognitive ability? And uh, so I looked into it. And once again, and my initial question was that I didn't think it was indicated and I didn't think we should do it. After looking at some of the guidelines, there are a few guidelines out there uh, that lean in the direction of potentially doing it. You know, the, uh, um, the Medicare guidelines and uh, some of the NIH, uh, National Institute of Aging, they've indicated that it might be a good thing to start doing for most patients in the future. With that in mind, I went through and I looked at a variety of the cognitive assessments that were available. Most of them were very simple, very short. And I think that's part of that's the goal, actually, for primary care providers in doing this is to keep it simple, keep it short. We picked one of the ones that was a little bit more involved. It was longer. It was uh, it was the more difficult one of all of them. It, it took significantly longer to complete, but uh, the president did ex exceedingly well on it. So uh, that was not driven at all by any clinical concerns I have. It was driven by the president's wishes, and uh, he, he did well on it. So there you heard Dr. Jackson describing the MOCA, a 10-minute test, as considerably longer and more involved than other common tests by which I assume he chiefly means the mini mental status examination, which takes eight minutes. In case you are wondering, no, the MOCA cannot confirm that anyone is a stable genius. It's a time-saving and in many ways a resource-sparing screening test to rule out dementia. It is somewhat reassuring that the chief executive has passed this screen. Now, I reached out to Dr. Nasruddin myself via email to ask whether he thought the MOCA was an appropriate screen in this case and whether he saw a role for further testing. He told me, quote, the tools clinicians use should be proportional to the level of concern. If significant concern remains about cognitive function despite a normal screening test, an in-depth neuropsychological assessment would then be warranted. 
I'll leave it to you to decide on your own level of concern. I think mine's been well publicized enough. Dr. Nasruddin also pointed out that training and certification is required to administer and interpret the MOCA to ensure accuracy. MOCA Test Incorporated is starting to receive feedback from concerned clinicians about versions of the test being posted online, potentially invalidating the test. They're advising that clinicians use alternate versions if they're concerned. But Dr. Nasruddin says that in his experience, patients with MCI and mild Alzheimer's disease do not benefit from a learning effect, even if they were previously exposed to the test. Next in our news roundup, today's prolonged adolescence. There's a fascinating viewpoint paper in the journal Lancet Child and Adolescent Health that I suspect a lot of rehabilitation providers may agree with, given the range of health issues we see in teenagers and 20-somethings. The notion that we become adults at 18 may be embedded in law, but the human body is still developing at a basic level well past 18. The brain doesn't fully form many key networks until the mid-20s, and brain areas critical to decision-making and emotional control don't fully mature until the late 20s. The early 20s are a period of increased medical need for many people as mental health and behavioral issues arise, all linked to this ongoing development. Why then shouldn't the medical definition of adolescence match up to what we're seeing biologically? That's the question that Dr. Susan Sawyer at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia and her colleagues are asking. They're making waves with a skillful case that adolescence properly begins at puberty and doesn't end until at least the mid-20s. They say adolescence is actually age 10 through age 24 instead of age 10 through 19. In many ways, the change reflects global society. All around the world, including the United States, people aren't truly independent of their family support until later in their 20s. Education and the training needed for today's economy keep piling on the years. Most people don't get married until 27 or 29 in the U.S. And for many European countries, marriage doesn't come until after age 30. Social policies that understand this reality, such as the Affordable Care Act's extension of parental insurance to dependents up to age 26, are increasingly common worldwide. Dr. Sawyer is quick to add that this isn't about infantilizing young people. Instead, we should think of adolescence as a unique phase of energy and creativity, as well as some vulnerability. And that would allow society to both value the contributions of adolescents and ensure that optimal investments are made to support their healthy growth and development. You can check out her group's paper in the January issue of Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. It's titled, The Age of Adolescence. And finally, introducing a new rehab journal. There's a new journal in town, the Journal of the International Society of Physical and Rehabilitation Medicine, which is going to be online only. Its editor-in-chief is Gerard Francisco of Tier in Houston. You can find it online at jisprm.org. Part of JISPRM's mission involves collaborating with other journals to advance the common mission of the field, and that could open up some very exciting opportunities. Welcome, JISPRM.
Now it's time for our interview featuring a paper from the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation's February issue. Joining us now is Dr. Felicia Skelton. She's a spinal cord injury physiatrist who's an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Baylor College of Medicine. She does her clinical work at the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center there in Houston, where she is now an investigator at the Center for Innovations in Quality, Effectiveness, and Safety. Dr. Skelton completed a two-year research fellowship prior to assuming her current role as an investigator there. Uh, Dr. Skelton, thanks for joining me on the Rehabcast today. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, you have a growing body of research in uh, spinal cord injury medicine. A lot of it's centered on uh, management of uh, UTIs, incredibly important to that patient population. The study that we have you on, the Rehabcast to talk about today, published in uh, the February issue of the Archives, is routine urine testing uh, at the spinal cord injury annual evaluation leads to unnecessary antibiotic use, a pilot study, and future directions. So you, you do achieve a clear result in this study, which you can <laughs> declare right there in the, in the title. That's always nice to see. So uh, tell me um, a little bit, let's start kind of uh, learning a bit about, about your practice, uh, kind of where you're based and the type of spinal cord injury medicine that, uh, that you practice. Sure. Um, so I am at the Houston VA, as you mentioned, and the VA is an interesting model of care for people with spinal cord injury in that they actually employ physiatrists such as myself and my colleagues um, as primary care physicians um, for people with spinal cord injury. So in addition to, to taking care of their rehab-related needs and the bowel and bladder and skin issues that we're all very familiar with, I actually um, am providing their, their primary care and preventative services as well. So I think it puts me in a youth position uh, to really tackle this topic because it's something that I see very commonly. You guys have a very large spinal cord injury service there, right? We do. We do. We're um, probably the largest center in the southwest. Um, we take care uh, for kind of the primary care outpatients that we see anywhere between 400 to 450 veterans each year. In order to, you've kind of uh, really started engaging in research uh, a lot recently over the course of a fellowship that you've done uh, with the VA as well. Tell me about that. Yes. So um, after I finished my clinical fellowship in spinal cord injury medicine, I actually had the opportunity to um, to engage in additional uh, and specific research training through the VA. Um, they have health services research postdoctoral fellowships. There's a couple of centers across the nation that has one, um, and Houston has one. And it's basically kind of structured didactic and also um, entered research um, for two years, um, where, you know, it's gave me protected time to write and kind of do the research that I talk about in this paper, um, and also apply for, um, independent funding, um, which I was able to do towards the end of my, my fellowship. So it was, it was a really great, uh, opportunity and experience. I think, I believe I was the first physiatrist to go through that program. Oh, excellent. Uh, okay. Yeah. But there, there's, I think one of the, the great strengths of the program is that, um, there's so many different um, types of people. So there's physicians from all of their different specialties. There's nurses. There's physical therapists. Um, it really is kind of open to any kind of post any postdoctoral candidate that may be interested in in doing health services research. Now you have certainly picked for yourself a fruitful area of research. I mean, uh, urinary tract infections, just in the general population, is a major issue. Obviously, certainly it's a major focus of spinal cord injury medicine. It's an area where you know guidelines are. Uh, evolving and sometimes internal uh, guidelines, just certainly a lot of just kind of 
learned practice might vary and be changing from what is necessary both for the population level and for uh, given patients. Um, certainly, I think we've seen uh, a lot of clampdown on, on hospitals kind of throughout uh, the United States in terms of being responsible uh, for urinary tract infections, uh, catheter-associated urinary tract infections, extremely important, something that's very difficult to avoid uh, in the spinal cord uh, population. The CDC, uh, all of us are are concerned uh, about the growing um, antibiotic-resistant strains of uh, organisms that commonly infect uh, humans, and the probable over-treatment of UTI is certainly a factor with that. Now, um, uh, you've got a couple of papers out so far this year between uh, this uh, novel study uh, being published in uh, in the archives. Uh, You also have a paper out in the Journal of Spinal Cord uh, Medicine in which you kind of uh, uh, go over the problem in general. It's titled Effective Antibiotic Stewardship in Spinal Cord Injury uh, Challenges and a Way Forward. Would you tell us a little bit about uh, the thrust of that paper? Sure. Um, And those these two papers actually pair very nicely together um, in the sense that I, the first I characterize kind of the scope of the problem in a spinal cord injury population. As you mentioned, um, this is a very kind of hot button topic right now. The idea of, of urinary tract infection and then catheter associated urinary tract infection as it's tied to different hospital reimbursement policies. And so I wanted to characterize the scope of the problem in a spinal cord injury population, which hadn't been done before in, in, in the archives paper, and then in the journal Spinal Cord Injury Medicine uh, paper, we understand the scope of the problem now, at least in a single uh, VA center here in Houston. Uh, we now kind of wanted to look at what information was available nationwide as to what resources are available um, for to, to develop uh, effective antibiotic stewardship strategies. And again, um, just very briefly, antibiotic stewardship, simply put, is our interventions designed to promote the appropriate use of antibiotics. So using antibiotics when we want them uh, for the right dose, right duration, the right route, you know, rather oral or IV, but then also the the corollary of that is using antibi- is not using antibiotics when we when we don't want them, uh, which is kind of the focus of, of of what I'm trying to advocate for in a spinal cord injury population. And so that uh, the the journal of spinal cord uh, medicine uh, paper really focused on um, the results of a, a nationwide survey to different VA facilities nationwide. Um, this was back in 2012. I think they've since updated the survey a bit, um, but a lot of this information, um, you know, around that time was when this whole idea of antibiotic stewardship was kind of really taking off. So I think it was a very um, important time point to look at these measures. And it basically asked the different facilities, well, okay, what resources do you have available as far as for personnel? Do you have guidelines kind of guiding um, your antibiotic use policies? Do you have guidelines to stop antibiotics when they're not appropriate? It was a whole battery of, of, of questions that they sent out to these facilities. And we wanted to look at see what resources were available in uh, VA centers with spinal cord injury centers versus those that didn't. Um, as a way of kind of setting the stage for, um, you know, we know that this is a very vulnerable population. And we know that we want to, you know, provide effective antibiotic stewardship to this population. So what's out there? You know, what's at our at our disposal, you know, as we kind of set out gathering more information and hopefully designing an intervention. Um, And so we were able to to characterize that information. And um, the take home points from that study is that. as one might expect, you know, and seeing that spinal cord injury centers are usually at tertiary referral centers, they're in bigger cities, they usually have a very robust training programs, that a lot of the resources that we 
um, have seen in previous studies that are effective in, in, in antibiotic stewardship are available in spinal cord injury centers. So that was really encouraging to us and as we kind of embarked on this journey um, to, to develop our own interventions that, you know, we definitely have the tools in place to get this done. So that was really important. Now, your, your study uh, focusing at, at your center, uh, this is, of course, a, a retrospective uh, chart review. Um, and what's fascinating here is you're taking on not just kind of common knowledge type practice and seeing if that can be improved and kind of match more recent guidelines, but you're actually taking on apparently a VA policy that has a number. It's a, a 1176.01. Uh, tell, yes. tell me about that policy. One of the, the many things that I enjoy about taking care of people with spinal cord injury um, here at the VA is that there's very, um, there are very explicit practice guidelines um, kind of dictating the care of what we do. And so as part of these guidelines, um, every veteran that is seen at, um, with spinal cord injury in the VA system of care um, is recommended to have an annual evaluation, which is basically a yearly physical that includes, um, you know, a physician examination and an examination through a therapist and a battery of labs um, and imaging studies. Um, included in this lab panel is a urinalysis and urine culture. Um, so that means that everybody that walks through the door with a spinal cord injury that's seen in the VA um, that comes for their annual evaluation, this yearly physical, um, it's recommended to grab a urinalysis and urine culture on them, even if they don't have any symptoms of a urinary tract infection. Mm -hmm. um, and this is contrary to some of the other um, guidelines, the ones that we mentioned in the paper, especially um, in the Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines, um, that you should not screen, which is essentially this is, a, you know, get a urinary, uh, a urinalysis and a urine culture on patients without symptoms. And so we, we really wanted to kind of explore this intersection of these two different practice guidelines and just look and see what the outcomes were. Mm -hmm. You know, we can characterize kind of the rate of asymptomatic bacteria in this in this kind of really established cohort, as well as kind of look at the, the rate of treatment for asymptomatic bacteria. Um, and, and so then, mm -hmm. and let's set our definitions for our audience too. So, what is uh, asymptomatic bacteria versus an actual UTI? Sure. So, the only difference between asymptomatic bacteria and urinary tract infections are symptoms of an infection. Um, and I think that's really what we want to drill down on: is that if someone, I, I can't make someone feel better than feeling okay. Um, and so, if someone comes in for whatever reason has a urine culture done. It grows a certain cutoff of organisms. Again, for asymptomatic bacteria, it's greater than 10 to the fifth colony forming units of a bacteria considers that urine culture positive, but they feel completely okay. Mm -hmm. um, no signs or symptoms of urinary tract infection, that's asymptomatic bacteria. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that shifts that over to urinary tract infection is that they now have symptoms of, your, of, of an infection. And in the spinal cord injury population, that can be a little bit different than the, the, the general population that it can include um, increased spasticity, autonomic dysreflexia, just kind of a general feeling of unwellness and those, and those type of things. Do you think that in spinal cord injury medicine for a long time there was a bias uh, towards overtreatment perhaps is a good thing, perhaps, perhaps because the symptoms are so vague and you don't know for sure if the patient should perhaps be feeling symptoms that they aren't? Absolutely. And I think that's what makes this, this field of research so interesting but also so complicated in the sense that this is a very high-risk population um, that in where, you know, for a long time, urosepsis and other, you know, genital urinary related 
um, infections and complications were the highest causes of mortality. Mm-hmm. Before we figured out how to treat, um, you know, the, the, the complications and the consequences of neurogenic bladder as effectively as we do now, that's what killed people. With, 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 uh, that's what killed people with spinal cord injury. And so there's definitely a bias towards, um, you know, the urine always being the cause of someone's symptoms or the urine always being the cause of someone's issues. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it's a double-edged sword. You know, we know a lot of people. We know a lot of people with spinal cord injury. Um, you know, chronically catheterized, either with indwelling catheters or with intermittent catheterization, and that in and of itself just colonizes the the, the bladder with bacteria. So, if you check somebody's urine that has a, that uses a catheter, there's a good chance it's going to be positive. And so, again, there's a lot of it, it's challenging. People think, oh, the person just has urinary tract infection. That's an easy diagnosis to make. Mm-hmm. When you really kind of drill down to it, um, it's uh, there's a lot of cognitive challenge kind of going in there, throw these very kind of complicated guidelines on top of that, and, and you've got yourself a challenge. You've got yourself a diagnostic challenge. Sure. And and I, it looks like a, another issue that, uh, that folks are often concerned about is that there's certainly the type of organism, this idea of... Um, uh, organisms of, of the proteus species in, in particular that may be yes. st- stone-forming. People really want to try to detect those and do something about that uh, in spinal cord patients. Can you tell me a little bit about why people think that's such a problem and you know, kind of the whole debate about whether they should be treated or not? There's definitely evidence that, um, that organisms from these urease-producing organisms that you mentioned as the proteus species, the providencia species, um, the peas, it's kind of the easiest way to remember those organisms. Um, they are definitely kind of uh, stone-promoting, and stone formation in people with spinal cord injury has a very high morbidity and mortality. So there's definitely um, that concern. But I think one of the great things, um, at least that we showed on this small scale in our study, is that we specifically looked at the outcomes of people with asymptomatic bacteria, including some of these organisms that were treated with antibiotics, and looked at the outcomes of those that did not. So 60 days after the annual evaluation in corner, we looked, okay, who was getting admitted to the hospital? Who was going to the ER? The the great thing about that, at least, in the, again, in this small single-site study, is that those rates were very low, first and foremost, and there were no difference in the rates that um, between the treated group and the untreated group. So I think as clinicians, we obviously think that we, you know, we, there, there's definitely that concern that we should get on top of this and that we should treat these organisms, um, but the evidence is not bearing out that it makes a difference. And so if we're not helping the patient and could possibly har- be harming them, that's a concern. Yeah, and that's a theme of so much important <laughs> uh, outcomes research and everything that's happening right now. I mean, there's, it's, uh, it's certainly, it's, it's frustrating, but it's a good thing. But, you know, obviously a lot of time and attention and hoopla and everything is centered around in medicine we know today doing a fair amount of things that, that really aren't yielding too much. Yeah. And um, I think it's easy to become very cynical <laughs> with some of those things and that there's so many rules and regulations and it's tied to reimbursement. Um, I think at the end of the day, we all want to uh, provide high quality care and safe care to our patients. Um, we want to, you know, we live in a world of finite resources and it's up to us to be good stewards of those resources. Um, the less money we can spend for the better outcomes, that equals quality of care. That's something that we all want. It's just easier said than done. Um, and so, I, again, I hope uh, 
starting with this study and kind of some of the future work that I'm working on is that I can can kind of help make that um, easier for providers to to actually deliver on. Now, when uh, folks are reflexively, as you know, guidelines uh, you know often ask them to do, uh, ordering uh, urine analysis and urine cultures just kind of as a matter of course in spinal cord patients, uh, you are finding uh, you know a fair amount of of positive cultures. Um, and uh, of course, that's the you know fascinating thing about the study, trying to determine you know how much uh, whether it's a true UTI or entirely asymptomatic bacteriuria, uh, as we're talking about here, does that then motivate treatment? Certainly, um, as is not a surprise, you know, the study documents that uh, uh, mostly uh, actual UTIs are generating treatment, but a high percentage of actual just asymptomatic uh, uh, infections are resulting in leading to antibiotic treatment, about 36%. Yes. Um, and, and you explain in the study, too, kind of referencing prior work as to why that might be a, a bad idea. Um, what do you think are some of the motivations for the, for the clinician in terms of treating the asymptomatic number? Is it just like a Pavlovian thing? You know, we, we just see that and automatically respond to it. Um, uh, do you think it's something to do with some of these, these practice ideas about, again, trying to tamp down on maybe uh, the urease uh, organisms and that type of thing? It seems like a fairly high number in the first place. Yes, yes. And it's, it's definitely the, the urease-producing organism um, issue, as we discussed previously, and we explored that. We looked at kind of the predictors of antibiotic use and looked at several patient characteristics and also urinalysis results um, that were, were predictive of antibiotic use for asymptomatic bacteria and age, um, presence of nitrate, on your analysis results and that um, the positive culture with those those bad actor um, co- uh, organisms such as the protea species definitely were significantly significant predictors of antibiotic use for asymptomatic asymptomatic bacteria. And again, I think a lot of that is intuitive. We 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 think that a lot of old you know older age. Um, we think those folks are maybe frail, maybe have higher comorbidities. Um, and so I think there's definitely that kind of impulse to, to treat those people, um, even if they may not be symptomatic at that very moment, trying to prevent them from being symptomatic down the road. Um, again, some of those kind of classic um, indicators on your analysis results, like the nitrite, uh, again, that maybe points us towards wanting to treat somebody, even if they're asymptomatic. But again, um, the at least in a 60-day follow-up window, we're not really moving the needle on, on on some of the clinical indicators that we care about. Again, these people don't seem like they're getting more sick, um, you know, winding up in the ER, winding up in the hospital more frequently than people that don't get antibiotics. So we're, we're really not achieving what we're trying to achieve. Right. Uh, yeah, you cite one study where folks with uh, asymptomatic bacteria were treated 93% are bacteriuric again within 30 days, uh, and just this time now, now the bacteria on average have more resistance. So you know, yes. probably even doing some harm there. It's uh, you can actually sometimes see it, you know, from oh, I get a urine culture, and then that next urine culture, you know, it's now um, the, the 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 bug that they're going is resistant to the antibiotic you just treated it with. So sometimes you can it it, it feels almost. Um, anecdotally that you can see someone's, um, you know, the bacteria in someone's urine becoming resistant to the antibiotics that you treat them with. Again, it's um, being a little bit facetious in that, you know, you can't clearly chalk one 
um, exposure to antibiotics up to resistance. But um, as a clinician, it's it's always a it's always a hard thing to see when the bug you used to treat them last month for an infection no longer works. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, I thought it was interesting too. The study documents a fair percentage of uh, you know symptomatic uh, UTIs which, which aren't aren't treated. Maybe I think I saw a number around thirteen percent or so. Mm-hmm. Do you think uh, that what are some of the reasons why you might elect not to treat? Uh, somebody who does have some symptoms. Sure. And as someone, um, this is a practical matter. Again, I went through and reviewed all these charts and classified all the cases. So I'm I'm pretty, uh, I'm intimately familiar with the data. And those, um, it wound up being, um, like you said, uh, 14% of the of the UTI cases, what um, which were three incidents again in this two year period, and I think it's a it's a it's a systems issue. Um, we see people again from a pretty large swath of area across the Southwest, and we see them at their center, but they may go back to another smaller VA in another town. Um, so sometimes the the, the communication of those results isn't as fluid as we'd like. And so I think sometimes they just, they get missed. Um, they get missed, those cases of UTI get missed. You've, you, so you've got some pretty uh, compelling results here um, in uh, indicating kind of an ongoing practice that, uh, that really uh, deserves change, certainly should be nudged by this type of evidence. Um, you're publishing it, that's great. Uh, what's the internal mechanism? And this may certainly gonna apply, I think, outside the VA as well. I'm curious, mm-hmm. inside the VA, is there kind of a mechanism for kind of uh, revising uh, internal practice guidelines and that type of thing? There is. Um, so uh, Dr. Holmes, which is one of my co-authors and the spinal cord injury uh, Caroline executive here at the Houston VA, um, and I are in frequent contact with kind of the national leadership um, for the VA system, uh, this VA spinal cord injury system of care. And there are talks about um, revising these these guidelines and uh, making them more aligned with some of the other, other evidence-based guidelines that are out there in practice. Um, but I think at the end of the day, we, we'd like to have some, some robust evidence to kind of guide some of those changes. Um, and so that's why I'm hopeful that um, this work and some of the uh, my future studies will will help kind of guide us one way or another towards making some of those those guideline changes. That's right. This is billed as a pilot study. I think it's pretty good evidence in of itself. What yeah. do you what do you envision though for the next stage? Sure, sure. So um, what our team hopes to do through um, a series of kind of well designed pragmatic trials um, is to look at the scope of the problem from a qualitative standpoint. Um, And so we want to actually talk to patients and providers and try to figure out what's going on. You know, why do we think we're testing our urine this way? Is it helpful? Is it harmful? Um, To really just kind of get people's understanding of the current guidelines, why we do the things that we do, and their thoughts about it. Um, We're going to use some of the themes that we we gain from um, from those interviews to kind of look at um, essentially reproduce this study on a national scale. Um, so the, the VA has some very robust um, administrative databases um, that can give us a lot of this information now, just not at a single site, but nationwide. The goal of this is to use this information to uh, develop an intervention, which is going to be a combination between provider and patient materials um, to help all parties make more um, evidence-based decisions about urine testing and management at the point of care. And that's where we're going with this. 
Excellent. Yeah, I think it's, it is important to kind of reopen a dialogue on this and kind of get some, I mean, who knows, um, uh, folks may feel that uh, this type of information in and of itself informs their practice, regardless of whether or not they uh, choose to, to treat the, uh, the organism present almost universally uh, in, in the urine. Um, and I suppose a case could be made that uh, maybe folks can uh, kind of restrain themselves and start to learn a, a little bit more and perhaps adopt this practice that, hey, uh, actually treating the organism is not worthwhile. It may be useful still for me to know about it, you know, as a potential risk factor that's there and documented and maybe add something to my picture of this person's overall health as a spinal cord injured person as okay. to what's growing. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I suppose we're, we're well aware now in a lot of, a lot of medicine that uh, data uh, certainly uh, can influence practice kind of relatively quickly. A number that you see people respond to perhaps sometimes whether they should or shouldn't, it can be very hard to resist. One answer to that type of thing is, hey, let's gather less data so we mm -hmm. don't do more of the bad thing. Another, exactly. another side of the debate might be, you know, uh, if we can at least uh, – um, perhaps learn how to respond better to the data. Perhaps it's still going to be useful in another context. Later on, persons readmitted to the hospital. Hey, we happen to have the, the annual uh, UA and culture on file. That helps a little bit and how we're going to start out treating this urosepsis they might have later on. Absolutely. And again, I think that's all going to be um, part of the process. And I'm excited to, to, to do the research and um, get the information so that um, at the end of the day, I just want um, people with spinal cord injury to receive the highest quality and the, the safest care possible. Dr. Skelton, I really appreciate your joining us in the podcast, and thank you for your dedication to improving this aspect of SCI care. Okay, awesome. Thanks for, for having me. And that wraps it up for this February 2018 edition of the Rehab Cast. Thanks are due, as always, to the show's fantastic producer, Jenny Ament, and the support of the journal. Keep reading the archives, and please keep reserving your best research for us. Thanks for listening. A message from ACRM, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine. Call for nominations. It's award season in Hollywood and at ACRM. Do you know someone who's energetic and passionate and deserves recognition? Nominate them for an ACRM award, some of the most prestigious in the field. Visit acrm.org forward slash awards. Mm -hmm.